water, John. Yeah, thanks. As you can see, I'm not doing any cycling. So today we're joined by Sir Bradley Wiggins, who is, uh, until 2021, the most highly decorated Olympian, um, master cyclist, and first British winner of the Tour de France. Thank you. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, your cycling career and move on to you know, what you're doing currently, um, if that's all, all yeah. good. To start at the beginning, um, so your father was a professional cyclist. He was. Yeah. yeah. And would you say that's an influence on how you developed uh, an interest in cycling? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my dad was um, an Australian. He came over in the 1970s. Um, he was a pretty tough guy, outback Australian, and he was really good at cycling, he had a huge talent and could have been a lot better than he was, but he basically drank himself to death and um, he was uh, quite a loose character, um, quite a violent man, and, um, but he had a big talent, you know, a big engine, and he could have gone very far in the sport. He was, um, you know, he became a, a world champion himself and, um, you know, kind of then sort of got carried away with the success really and the money and things and uh, left myself when I was a young baby. I never saw him again until I was 19. So I, I, I kind of didn't see him for 17 years, 18 years. Um, I don't quite know how long actually because my mum never told me. Um, but it's... Uh, so he kind of... I, I kind of grew up um, in the knowledge about him because my mother informed me a lot about him and um, glorified all his bad traits and glorified him in cycling sense as well. Um, and I um, grew up idolising him and he was my hero um, and I always wanted to emulate him and things like that. So obviously I got very good about 16 years old, 17. Um, and he was... Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Really. I think I realise now when I look back that that was the drive really throughout my kind of teenage years really was to, to emulate the success in, in, his, um, in his absence really. So um, that's kind of how I got into cycling, really. My mum, I was playing football a lot when I was a teenager, and my mum kind of pushed me into cycling, really. Um, and I didn't really want to do it at first, but she... It was her way of kind of showing my dad that she, what she'd do with their son, you know? So I kind of got caught in this kind of... Um, kind of the crossfire of their kind of fallout. And she developed a monster in terms of me, really, mm. in a cycling sense, which I don't think she ever anticipated. You said um, said before that you hate cycling now, but yeah, I mean I don't enjoy yeah. riding my bike. It's fucking hard yeah. work, you know. <laughs> I, I never really did enjoy it. I, I thought I loved it at one point, and people sort of say to me now, "It's a shame you've fallen out of love with cycling." I didn't really enjoy it when I look back now. I've kind of come to the, that conclusion. It, I, I, I don't ride my bike for a reason because I don't like it. Um, it's just you have to ride for such a long time. I mean, have you ever been up a hill on a bike? It's hard work. Not hills like you. Yeah. Um, but I did become obsessed with cycling as a child. Yeah. In, in terms of, like, you know, once I kind of... And that, that all stemmed, again, from this kind of being a, a, my dad in, in the absence of my father, really. It was like I threw myself and thrust myself into cycling, really, and became obsessive, in a, a, like I do with most things, in a, in a kind of weird way for a teenager, really, growing up in central London on a council state in the early 90s. This was before Rafa and how cycling became cool, you know? Um, and I... Um, it was uh, a challenging time, really for me, but I, uh, I think it, it was, it, a lot of cycling for me was just, it was to get the sense of freedom that it gave me in terms of running away from, from, from my environment I was growing up in and stuff like that. It was quite a rough environment and, um, yeah, I think that, that's kind of, 
why I did it, really. I've only just realised, it took me 40 years to realise that, really. Um, yeah. Do you have, like, a sort of image of being on the podium that motivated you through something that you didn't enjoy or, you know, what got you up there? Not, not just the podium, no. I mean, it was always about winning for me. Um, and I, 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 I never saw it any other way than other than being successful, really. It's weird. I kind of, um, from the age of 12, I watched Chris Borden win the Olympic Games in, in Barcelona on the Lotus bike. Um, and I was obsessed with the Tour de France. And I remember telling my art teacher, Miss Kennett, she was a right bitch. <laughs> when I was 12, I was pissing around in art, and she said to me, um, Come on, you, you, what are you going to do with the rest of your life, Brad? And I said, I want to win the... I said, listen, love. I didn't say listen, love, but it sounds good now. <laughs> I said, uh, I, want to, um, I want to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, win the Olympic Games. And she laughed at me. and Because uh, we wasn't saturated at that time with Olympic champions and, and things like that. Mm. It, it wasn't... It, now it's much more you know, viable that p kids can do that, you know, because we've got so many great champions in this country. But... Um, yeah, she, she said that to me, laughed, and, and that was kind of... You weren't... Kids weren't encouraged to be very ambitious in West London then, you know, in state school. It was very, um, you know, you, you, your sort of future was destined for whatever it was, you know, whether it was working in Ladbrokes or being a part, you know, milkman or postman. That was, it wasn't much to aspire to be, or being on the dole, you know. When kids are going on at 16, 17 to sign on at the dole with their dads, you know, there's not much, much there's not much to hope, really, so... Um, yeah, it was, it was like that, really. Um, but I was always very ambitious, and that came from um, my mum, really, I suppose, and my grandparents, really, that it was quite an emotionless family, really, but, you know, it was... Achievement was put up amongst any, everything else as, as what was success in life, really. Um, so that was kind of like, you know, you had to win, really. It was, otherwise you'd be bloody useless, as my granddad used to say. You know, and I think that was kind of where that came from, the pressure to win, really, yeah. you know, as, as a mark of um, what success in life was. Um, I remember I asked you before, you know, do you regret uh, being the cycling champion that you were and having this career? Um, mm. you know, did it give you fulfilment or happiness when you got to the point that you'd been thinking about the whole time? No, no, it didn't. It was, it was very emotionless and it was like a box-ticking exercise a lot of the time. And it never felt like I thought it was supposed to feel. I didn't know what it was supposed to feel like, but you have this sort of image of what it's supposed to feel like or this kind of romantic vision of what it's going to be like, but it was never like that. And um, winning became the standard from very early on, and that was the marker, really. So it was... Um, it was um, there was no second place after that from the first Olympic... Well, my second Olympic Games in Athens, I won gold. And from that on, the next four Olympics, it was always about winning. And so when it becomes like that, it becomes an emotionless experience where it's a relief when you've won more than anything that you've got the gold and you've kept the standard. Um, but it, it takes... But then I guess, I guess there is a contradiction in that, that is, sport isn't supposed to be enjoyable, you know, at that success. Um, you know, people that get a bronze medal and things like that, they're overjoyed that they've won a bronze medal. But you, um, you can only lose an Olympic final. There's only first or second place, so it's... Um, it's heartache for one person, but relief for the other, I think, more than anything. It's particularly when you're having repeated success. Um, and the more success you have, you know, the, the more pressure that comes with it every time you put yourself on the line. So, yeah, towards the end of my career, it was, it was I mean, by Rio, by the Olympics in Rio, it was just, let's get me out of here, let's win this thing, go home. And I craved normality by that point. So it wasn't, it wasn't an enjoyable experience from that point of view, no. But by then, your, 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 your whole life is just about application 
and going through a process and a routine, a daily routine, and it's a job by that point. Um, and you, you could go on for another four years and try and do another Olympic Games, but it's just the pressure that comes with that. Well, what if you don't win in four years' time? That's, that's the question, really, because, as I say, winning became the standard. So it's then about trying to find something else to do in your life where you can have, you know, the passion enough to put the same application in and hard work to, to have an end result and whatever, and I haven't really found that yet. You told me you were getting into boxing. Has that become... Well, so, yeah, before that, I, I, when I retired, the, the yeah. first thing, you know, uh, I... I'm, I'm quite encyclopedic about cycling. I've got extensive knowledge of it from my obsession when I was a child. Um, and it's the only thing I ever learned when I was a kid. I was like a sponge to, to all this sort of stuff, you know, and um, that carried me well through a couple of years of broadcasting and doing the Tour de France and things like that. But after last year, I kind of had enough of that as well. It's not fulfilling enough. And I um, now I'm kind of in limbo a little bit. And I've started doing other things. I've been working with the NSPCC and Mind Charity and doing stuff that's, you know, kind of much more rewarding, really, um, fulfilling, yeah. anyway. And, and t talking about my story, not in terms of a sub-story, but more in the, with the view of helping other people. Um, and to do that, you have to be quite honest, and I had to go to some dark places in order to do that. But um, I have took up boxing since January um, out of the blue um, because I've found that it's put me really out of my comfort zone, and yeah. it's reminded me of what cycling... I don't know what I say. It's reminded me what cycling was like in terms of a daily routine, um, but cycling, this has been very hard to do and trying to challenge and master. Although I did take up rowing when I stopped cycling a bit to try and do the same thing there. I love the sort of routine of things like that and um, learning a new skill that's quite difficult to learn. Mm. Um, but cycling was never like that for me. Cycling came easy to me when I was a child. And I think most things do when you're, when you're a child anyway. They, they're certainly easier than trying to take them on when you're, when you're an adult. So you're filming um, uh, a documentary about imposter syndrome with the BBC yeah. today. I just wanted to ask about that. Um, because some of your coaches have characterised you as a cyclist as being very self-critical. Um, mm. Do you think you were too harsh on yourself during your career? And yeah, you differently? I'm quite harsh on myself in general, even yeah. in daily life. You know, I'm quite a self-aware person, and you have to be critical of yourself in order to move forward and be a better person or a better version of yourself. But yeah, I was highly critical of myself, and I don't think that's a bad thing. That's probably why I was so good at what I did as well, yeah. because. Um, I think if you can delude yourself very easily, particularly with cycling or any sport, really, that, you know, what worked last year will work again, really. And I think in terms of moving forward, you always have to move the boundaries and stretch the goalposts a little bit in terms of um, getting a better performance, really. You think it's like that for every champion? Yeah, I think so. I think it has to be. But also for every champion. I think there's, there's another sort of part to that as well, is that we're we talking about being someone who's great at something. Mm. And I mean greatness in terms of the causes like a societal change, you know, and, or <coughs> being good at something, really. There's, there's a difference between great at something and being good at something. Mm. And I think a lot of greatness comes from a past in your life, really, a sort of a pain, like an adversity, really, yeah. that drives you. That's almost a distraction from facing that, really. And I think I've spoke to a lot of people over the years now, and I think that's become true of most people that are, are good at something, is that there's, a, there's something that's different about them to the people that are just good at something um, and it's a really interesting fascinating thing to explore because um, it's a lot of the times it comes with like a heartache and things like that that they're running away from a, a trauma or things like that that they haven't addressed and it's perhaps why they've had such an extended successful career as well is because the longer you extend it and the longer your career you have you don't have to address it you said that uh, just before that 
um, cycling was a sort of gave you freedom from yeah. your past. Um, is that why you preferred the road to the track? No, I mean, I didn't know it gave me freedom. I've just yeah. realised that in the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to go into a question more about the cycling, what is the, you know, why did you end up doing Tour de France instead of... Uh, I got, yeah, I think I just, I'd done three Olympic Games on the track by then, mm. and um, I wasn't earning any money, and I had two kids by then, so I thought I'd better go and start doing something that made the mortgage. Um, and it was a good time filler between the next Olympic Games, and, and so I went and did, um, went to a team called Garmin at the time, yeah. with a view to riding for someone else, a guy called Christian Vanneveld, who'd finished fourth in the Tour de France in 2008, and um, I'd won three Olympic golds by then, and London was on the horizon four years later. Um, but I thought, you know, late 20s now, it'd be nice to go and do the Tour de France and, and really commit to it and be part of a successful team riding in the, in the service of someone else. And I did that, and I ended up surpassing the team leader and getting in fourth and going toe-to-toe with Lance Armstrong for the podium that year, which opened up a whole new avenue for potentially what I could do the next few years in terms of, you know, well, I've got a new job here, a new job prospect, mm. Mm. and it's not just on the track. Um, so I never ended up never going back to the track for London 2012. I went and did the road events. So it kind of was a nice time filler for the next six years, really, of something yeah. to do. And although I never enjoyed that, it was, that was a, you know, even harder. Um, I, I had to learn a new kind of way of living as a cyclist, really, and it, it was a lot more. Yeah. I had to adopt a sort of monk persona, really, and it, was like a, it became a religion at that point. It was a 24-hour job, yeah. uh, seven days a week, and everyone around you had to live that. And I became a dreadful person doing it. You know, it's a very, um, it's a very uh, selfish way of living, and um, people have to live it with you. And it's tough, you know, when you've got two kids. Um, and I think that's what kept me kind of sane a little bit as well, and, and realised that there is a world outside of this when you stop, and you don't have to go and win ten Tour de France's now. One will do, because your kids need you. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're talking about the money aspect of track versus yeah. road. Um, so in 2009, you were made a millionaire almost overnight when what? you time well according to the BBC interview oh fuck the BBC <laughs> <laughs> they can talk yeah um, but so you time, uh, signed with Team Sky mm. in 2009 and the Tour de France yeah. was not what was expected um, how did you get through that period I mean it was really hard I mean we had to sort of thought we knew it all and kind of had to go back to the drawing board really um, plus I wasn't the team leader you know, and I had to step up to the plate. I, the, I had the benefit the year before at Garmin of being one of the helpers who kind of came out of nowhere. But once I was thrust into the limelight as a team leader in front of 25 riders, I didn't know. I couldn't. I'm not really a lead. I'm quite a, a sort of introvert. I'm more of a bass player, sit at the back of the stage, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not a front man. And I don't like the kind of... When I had to become that front man, I kind of adopted a rock star persona and, you know, yeah. was quite kind of entertaining and... Because I could, that's the way I handled it, really. I handled it by being either quite contentious and shocking when I wasn't doing very well, or funny as fuck and drunk when I was doing well. And that's kind of how I got through those years. But that built a perception of me that was perhaps a little bit fake, really. And I kind of hid under that veil. I found it far easier to go in public, playing, you know, with the long hair and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was that was all sort of. Uh, more of a, like a, a sort of insecurity and not knowing who I was. I'd been a professional cyclist pretty much since I was 13. Um, I was quite an insecure kid. I'd, um, that had stemmed from many things. I was sexually abused by my first coach in my teens. Um, I'd, my father had abandoned me, so I didn't have a father figure around when that was happening. And all those things kind of built, you know, a kind of um, 
yeah, just lots of traumas that kind of I, I, I was, and cycling was an escapism from that childhood, really, and became a distraction for the next 30 years. Yeah. And it's when I stopped at 36, I had to deal with all this stuff. It was like thrust upon me like a skip of rubbish, mm. you know? But it's, you know, I'm a far better place now for it. Was that pain what put you, enabled you to get through? I didn't know it was pain. You don't know it is when you're a kid, you know? You yeah. just, these things, then you thrust them and you bury, bury things, you think, oh, that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but then my, when I, I met my father for the first time, I was 19, and that was really... And my son's 18 in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. And I see it through the eyes of him now. If he had to meet me when he was 18, 19 years of age... Yeah. Uh, it's a very difficult thing for, to do as a man, particularly when you're, you're quite demasculated at that point anyway. My stepfather was quite violent towards me mm. in my teens, like most kids' dads were when they were in the late 80s and early 90s. This was before the new age man, you know? Um, this is where you're allowed to hit people. Um, and it was... Um, all those things, plus I grew up in a council state, which was a really violent place, you know. I mean, so the school I went to, I witnessed a murder. My head teacher got stabbed, Philip Lawrence, in 1995. I don't remember, got stabbed by the Somalian triad on the, outside the school. And while I was there, and I remember watching that and thinking, this guy got punched. It looked like he'd been punched. And I didn't realise until 6 o'clock news that night he'd been, he'd been stabbed. Because, you know, if someone gets stabbed, I don't know if any of you have seen anyone get stabbed. Um, but it's, it's quite a, it just, it, it's, it's a very surreal thing, you know, you don't realise it's happened. Um, and um, I didn't realise that that was, I was so normalised to violence in where I grew up as a way of living, that, that, that you accept a lot of things that happen to you as normal and that it's okay, you know. Because, but you real, I realise now that it's such an abnormal way and such a, a, a horrific way to grow up like that, really. But again, all those things was it, it, why cycling became such a... It facilitated me escaping from all that environment and that past, you know. But I, 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 you can never let it go and you carry it with you for that period, really. So, as I say, it's only when I got... My kids got to the age they're at now. My son is a cyclist now. He took it up when he was 13, the same age as I pretty much did. So I've, I've watched him develop over the last five years. And it's been like watching myself in the mirror, really. He's very, very talented, probably better than I was. Um, and he, um, he is... Uh, on the fringes of the Olympic squad next year for the track. Um, and it's, um, it's funny, isn't it? Al, you know, I've, again, I'm no different to many other people, and this isn't a sub story. It's just um, I, I realised it's why I was so good at cycling, really, was because of I, you know, my, my, my childhood, really. And without that, I would never have had the drive to do what I did. Yeah. It's, it's a very contradiction. And, um, but it's what you do with it now. And I've addressed it all, and I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm much more get much more fulfilment out of working for things like the NSPCC and launching campaigns and child abuse and things like that. And, and, and you know, my biggest sort of shame and trauma was became the, the sort of bravest thing I ever did, really, when coming out about it, yeah. um, with the view of helping others and accepting that it was not normal. So, um, and then I met my dad, as I said, when I was 19, and I wished he was there, and that was kind of one of the biggest sort of traumas of my life, really. I realise now as... You know, as a man meeting your dad when you're 19. Then he got murdered when I was 28, just before the Olympic Games. And I had to make a decision whether I went to the funeral or not and things like that. And so, just, just you know, the, the kind of... You're a product of your environment and you're a product of your childhood. And your parents, unfortunately, you can't choose them. But um, it's, um, it's, it's kind of what you do with it in latter, latter years, really. And you can live with this stuff forever or you can, you can, you can address it and... Um, use it for, for, to change for the better, you know, for other people as well, because lots of people go through this, yeah. and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a humbling thing to go through. 
and one of the reasons why you don't address these things and go through them is a lot of the time is because you're an Olympic champion, you're a five times Olympic champion, winning the Tour de France, you must be so mentally strong. Am I fun? <laughs> you know, we're all just the same underneath it all, really, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Well, thank you very much for your no, Thank you very much. Thank you for all coming. It's been a very... Thank you. It's your, uh, it's his last one as well today, so well done. Thank well you done, very Dave. Much. Thank you. Okay. Right, we out of here. Thank you. Right, I'm off. See you later. <laughs>